Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. And when we started the plants, I had a real passion <clears throat> to really become the church that God called us to be. Not to be the church, but become the church. You hear the verbiage? I think oftentimes churches set out to be something rather than become something. And so they have these grand, grandiose visions of, of what they were going to do and who they were, but yet never fully embodying it. And I remember when Omar, Pastor Omar, who is no longer on staff but still attends the church, myself and another individual, we were meeting basically three hours a week of just talking about vision and praying through what, what God was calling us to be. Matter of fact, um, in my first two years of being a lead pastor, I fasted over 198 days of seeking the face of Jesus. And it was the two most interesting years because I really prayed that God would create the church he wanted us to become. And I lost so much weight, everyone thought I was sick all the time. But I really sought Jesus. Not saying that we are the church and we've arrived at the church. I mean, we were 28 people and we went down to 16 people. That's not really a good success story. That's really bad. But we really were trying to figure out who we were. And what God has called us to be and to become. And so we prayed and we talked. And now I look back 15 years later and I see that the vision that God gave us when we were in Allendale, New Jersey, never got bigger. The vision never got bigger. It actually got tighter. And if you ever want to be, start of some, if you ever want to be part of something special or you ever want to be part of a great organization, or you ever want to work for a business that is thriving, you ask them what their vision was in the very beginning, and if they're still doing it to this day, that means they're healthy. And I see that our vision didn't get bigger, it got more focused. And as we really talked through this stuff, it was in 2019 we started putting verbiage to who we were becoming. And the first thing that we said was, we want to be a Christ-centered church. Last night I was at a wedding. It was a great time celebrating an amazing couple. And Steve, I'm just going to use you, Steve came up to me and he, and he said to me, because he was at the wedding too, he said, I just want to let you know that's why I'm at the plant. We are Christ-centered. And we talked about how his parents sent him to come to the plant. And they never once visited the church. But they knew that we were about Jesus and transformation. But as we really study scripture, this whole idea of being a, a Christ-centered church comes in community. It comes in discipleship. It comes in being in each other's lives. You see, what we've done is we've believed the lie that going to church is being discipled. No, going to church means that you are learning and you are studying and you are worshiping so you can go out into the world and make him known. But true discipleship is this, is that when we gather in community 
and we truly allow the work of God to be done in each other's lives. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about our second core value. What is the firm foundation that the plant is built on? Yes, we are a Christ-centered, discipleship-motivated church. And what I told you we were going to do so that we would be biblically grounded and would be our foundation is that when you look at the book of Acts, the five different values that we have wrestled through over the past 15 years, we've waited 15 years to really roll these out. Each value is just fluid throughout the book of Acts. When you look at Christ-centered, it's not only in Acts chapter 1, but it's all the way through the end. But then there's this other thing. What does it mean to be discipleship-motivated? Would you stand and pray with me? Let's stand. Jesus, I am so thankful that you've allowed us to get to this point. God, I was so humbled this week to think about how you not only have allowed us to be established, but you've allowed us to thrive. God, I thank you that, that in those times where, where that just seems so discombobulated, you said, stay focused on Jesus. And God, I ask you, I ask you that the next 15 years would be the most amazing 15 years of this church's existence to date. I ask you this morning that you would use your word, your passages, to speak to the hearts of what you've called the church to be. I ask you that none of this would be Rob-motivated, but only spirit-motivated. God, when I get excited, let humility be that which drives it. If I get emotional, let humility be that which the tears flow. And God, we trust that what you want to speak today is going to go to generations to come. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated if you have your Bibles and you want to open them. Turn to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> I think it's so important when, when I do say this. All of our core values are weaved throughout the book of Acts. Because to be the church, you must remember where the church started. And that was in Acts. So let's read Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> All, underline that, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. You notice how that word just is going to keep popping up? A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all... The believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. How much did they share? 
that wasn't too loud. How much did they share? Everything. Everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And who did they share with? Those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Let's take a look at this passage. Acts chapter 2. Last week, we had talked about how this was just before Pentecost. Well, now in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost has already happened. This is probably several months after Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God showed up. People were speaking in unknown languages. Everyone who knew those languages came to the place of worship. So many people got saved. Matter of fact, it says thousands came to salvation in Jesus. And all of a sudden, the church began. And God was doing amazing things in this group of people. Matter of fact, everything that would happen with the disciples prior to Jesus' death was now embodied amongst them. You see, what I love about this is that Jesus said to disciples, you will do even greater things than I. And what did he mean by that? He meant there's one of me and many of you. And so you all collectively are little Jesuses. And you are going to run around and you are going to bring the presence of God and miracles and signs and wonders and people who were oppressed will no longer be oppressed. It's all going to happen. And so when Jesus says you're going to do even greater things than I, he's talking about the multitudes and the magnitudes of this body of individuals that was going to go out into the world and be the presence of God to those who were lost and broken and isolated. And so many wild things happened that more and more and more people kept showing up. I've seen this. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this in my own life when there was a season where my wife and I truly trusted Jesus to open up our home and people just kept coming and coming and coming. And any given Friday night, we'd have over 45 different people showing up and the power of God doing crazy stuff. Matter of fact, there was a Father's Day, and there was a bunch of young people, and by chance, or was it divine, that every single young man that was in that house was fatherless, and we got to speak a father blessing over them. Upstairs, there was tons of young women all hanging out and and doing their thing and laughing and praying and talking, and there was this gathering of men who were all fatherless that we got to speak the Father blessing over them. And when you look at the early church, you see this divine work that was happening, and it was happening all over the place. 
It wasn't just in one home, but it was in many homes throughout Jerusalem. So my question is, where did they learn this? Where did they get this from? Well, they learned it from Jesus because they were a Christ-centered church. They were a Christ-centered group of individuals. Let's, let's see what happened in Matthew chapter 4. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them and said, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately, if you have your Bibles, underline that. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. And so where did they learn this? You see, everything the early church was doing was what Jesus had taught them. He invited strangers into his life. He didn't know Simon, he didn't know Andrew, he didn't know James, and he didn't know John, but he saw the handprint of God on their lives. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have the handprint of God. That was really weak, it's really soft. Say it a little louder. You have the handprint of God on your life, right? Everyone always whispers, like church clap, church whisper, right? right? He saw the handprint of God on their lives. And he said, come and follow me. And Jesus discipled them. Discipleship happens all over the world and all throughout humanity. Every world religion disciples people. This word, the word discipleship wasn't fresh or new or kind of like profound or, or a Greek special word of translation. It was what was happening. Matter of fact, when you look at these four individuals, they were all rabbi school dropouts. They didn't pass the rabbi bar. They didn't. And so they had to go work for their fathers or start their own business like Peter and Andrew would have. Because James and John worked for their dad, but Peter and Andrew said, hey, let's do what's second best because we can't do what's best, which is be a rabbi. But Jesus says, I'm going to disciple you. And what I love about discipleship is this, is that what true discipleship is, is two things. One, it's learning who you are as a child of God. That's what Jesus did. He invited them to understand their gospel identity. Why God made them, how God made them, and how to then live. You see, when we put ourselves in a place of discipleship, like these individuals did, they're saying, Jesus, I want to learn from you because you are a reflection, an embodiment of the Father, and your identity is supposed to be spoken into my identity. But here's the key of discipleship. It's not just learning. It's not like the more we learn, we push things out. 
True discipleship, and when you study the life of whether it be Thomas or, or one of the disciples, you see that not only did they have to learn their identity, they had to unlearn unhealthy patterns. They had to unlearn unhealthy patterns, thought patterns, habits, actions, and most importantly, what they believed to be true about themselves, that was a big lie. You know what I'm saying? Discipleship is not only learning who I am, but unlearning, stop and recognizing that these are all lies that have put me in a place of confusion and chaos so that I can learn who I actually am as a child of God. I think that's the biggest lie. We don't talk about the importance of unlearning. We talk about stop doing. Stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. Right? No, that's all it becomes. But rather, unlearning the unhealthy beliefs and patterns that one, we were born into, two, was part of the environment in which we grew up in, three, cultural stigmatisms that have been thrown on us, and four, part of the nature of what we wanted to become. Hear what I'm saying? Anyone agree with me with that? There, there's that tension. And so Jesus said, Come. Metanoia, repent, have a change of heart. Repentance is not, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. If you say, God, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again, guess what you're going to do next week? You're going to do it again, right? When Jesus says, repent, turn, and believe, you're saying, I'm going to turn from this old way of life, this old way of thinking, these patterns of thoughts, these patterns of actions, and I'm going to focus my eyes on Jesus and learn to give Jesus my yes. And as I learn to give Jesus my yes, I am going to unlearn those destructive patterns that have determined and defined who I am. And what I love about Peter is this. He wrestled with himself for years. All the way through Acts. Paul called him out. People called him out. Because discipleship is a lifelong journey. We are always learning our identity and unlearning who the devil wants us to believe he wants us to be. Jesus said, I came to give you a rich and satisfying life. The devil's come to steal, kill, and destroy. You are a child of God. If you are in Christ, you are identified as a son and daughter. This morning after the first service, someone said to me, he said, best thing you said all morning, unlearn. If we could unlearn so we can learn, game over. Game one. Amen? So Jesus, that's what he did. He invited them to eat with them, to watch him, to be a part of him, to invite him into his world. 
so that that culture around him was going to be shifted by the culture that this little group of people was bringing in to a world of brokenness. And it's so interesting because Jesus gave the disciples one job. One job only. One job only. There's only one job Jesus calls the church to do. And what we've done is we have confused what the church is supposed to be. We think church is about great preaching. We think church is about great worship. We think church is all about the show and the lights and the this and the that. And how many people come into your church means your church is either doing it right or wrong. It's not what Jesus ever said. It's not what Jesus ever said. Jesus says you have one job. Make disciples. Period. End of story. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 28. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You ever realize that when Jesus talked about people, he always used the word all? There's only one time that he uses the word many. Whenever he talks about people and humanity, he always uses the word all, except for one, one time where he says many. He says, for God so loved the world, the world, which means all the world, that he gave his son. But the only time he ever used the word many was who would believe. Many will believe, not all. But the gospel's for all. And he says, I've been given authority, given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am always, I, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's one job. Make disciples. And again, what does it mean to make disciples? I love how the first thing Jesus talks about is baptism. I love it. And yet the Western church puts such a small emphasis on baptism. Do you know that? Like, yeah, you can maybe if you think so. Jesus says, baptize. You see, what happens is, is when we baptize someone, they are publicly standing in front of others and saying, I'm a child of God. I am declaring I am a child of God. And so often there are these individuals that in their dark and depressed states, they forget their identity. And when I talked to someone, I said, were you baptized? Yeah. So every time the devil lies to you, you know what you do? You remind him of your baptism. Because when you went into the waters of baptism, guess what? You came up and you were a child of God. Even though you were already saved, you were publicly saying, Satan, no more stronghold. That's what you were saying. Publicly, you are not allowed to win. And I'm telling this group of people that Jesus has already won for me. I love it. Because when we are baptized, we are declaring that we are a child of God. And we are covered because when we went in, we put our old self to death and we came out, new life begun. That's a plug. If you've not been baptized and you are wrestling with your stuff, publicly declare it. I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. 
I'm a child of God. We'll chant it. It'll be fun. But then he says this. Teach. Teach them to obey. And when Jesus says, teach, teach them to obey all my commands, this is what he's doing. We live in this world where we talk about all the things that we should not be doing. Right? What's he going to tell me today? What's the pastor telling me I'm doing wrong? What do I need to stop doing? How am I supposed to change things? When you put yourself before Jesus, we're learning to give Jesus our yes. We're learning to live his best life for us. And when we put ourselves in an environment where we learn to obey the words of Jesus, because the words of Jesus fulfill everything in scripture, when we obey the words of Jesus, we don't have time to say no to other stuff. See what I'm saying? We get so caught up in what Jesus has in store that we don't worry about everything else. Because when you give Jesus your yes, you are telling your thoughts, your patterns, your behaviors, others, no. And so when we go to Jesus and we obey his commands, we are learning to say yes. I was so proud of the plant this summer. I threw out a challenge, 60 house parties. Yes, I'm a pastor that gave you permission to party. I said, good music, good drink, good food, and good times. That was the only four commands that your pastor gave you. Do you understand that? Four commandments from Pastor Rob. Just joking. Four ideas. And what I love is that I really believe that God was saying the holiest thing that this church can do is learn to be present for others. That's it. How hard is that? And you know, we went over 60. We were over 70 house parties. And the reality is we should have been over 400 house parties. But it was a great starting place. Because there was one family that came to the church in July, came every single Sunday since July, has only missed one time. They threw five house parties. Because they finally found a church that they were given permission to say yes to Jesus. Plant family, when you learn to obey the commands of Jesus, you don't have time to say no to the things of this world. I hope you're getting that. That's all he said. And what I love that Jesus says, and I'm not going to apologize for getting emotional. He says, and remember this, I am always with you. I'm always with you with you, even to the end of the age, even to the end of the age. I look at the last 31 years of walking with Jesus, and there were times that I wanted to quit. There were times that I wanted to give up. There were times that I wanted to go back to old patterns and old thoughts. There were times that, that my life literally looked like it was about to fall apart, there were times that I was doing everything right and everything seemed to fall apart. But all that time, Jesus was with me. All that time, every step, 
over 13 surgeries with my children. Every time he was there, every struggle, every battle, Jesus is present. And I look back and I look at the privilege of giving Jesus my yes. And all I see is a trail of Jesus being present. How awesome is that? And even when I was faithless, Jesus was faithful. And I look at this. And all he's called us to do is to walk with him as we walk with other people. We are a discipleship-motivated church, which means we don't do this alone. And I'll be honest with you, there is a huge enemy that is destroying the work of God in the Western world. There's an enemy against community, and it's called individualism. And it's called, and it's called consumerism. And I love what J.R. Woodward wrote. He wrote this, and I really felt like it was just a very healthy definition. He said, individualism saturates American culture. So what does it mean to saturate? To saturate something means that you don't, even you don't even know it's there. You don't even know it's there. So I was very sloppy growing up. Matter of fact, in college, my hamper, my clothes hamper was a stolen shopping cart. Okay? I'm not giving you permission to steal, but that's what I did. I stole a shopping cart because I didn't want to clean my room. And so every time I moved out of an apartment in college, I never got my security deposit back, which meant that I lost roommates very often. No one wanted to live with me, not because of my personality, but because how messy I was. And I thought it was normal. I thought it was normal. Matter of fact, my dad visited me in college and he saw my room and he threatened to pull me out of school. He literally showed up, went into my room and said, you're out. You're out. You got like two hours to clean this up or you're going back to Jersey with me. And so I cleaned it up for like five minutes and then it was back into being a mess. But I didn't even realize I was dirty. It saturated me. I was a wreck. I was a nightmare. I was a mess. And then I met Sue. And Sue is saturated with cleanliness. <laughs> and like I was so psyched to have a roommate and a buddy, and a partner, and we could just kind of hang out and play video games and wrestle together and, and like have dishes in the sink and never make our bed again, right? And I'll never forget, we came home from our honeymoon, and it was 10 o'clock at night. She says, okay, let's put all the dishes away. I'm like, huh? She's like, no, 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 let's tidy up before we go to bed. I'm like, uh-uh. I don't want to do that. She's like, no, 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 no. Clean up. And for a whole year, every single night, at 10 p.m., we had to put the dishes away. We had to clean the living room. And then when we woke up, we had to make the bed. Do you know how depressing that was for me? I didn't want a bed frame. I wanted my mattress on the ground like a college student, but someone having a buddy with me next to me, right? But what happened was she saturated my life. And then when people come on staff, they warn each other that Rob is saturated with cleanliness. And when it's Monday morning and staff come in and I'm in first, they're like terrified of seeing me. Like, do we put everything away? 
Matter of fact, when we started working with the preschool here, they saw me coming and everyone ran for their lives because they knew that Rob was saturated with organization. You see, saturation means that you don't even know what's happening. If you would come to our house any given day, it's like, hey, thanks for cleaning your house for me. I'm like, no, Sue cleans it every single day. But now I do too. But here's what it says. Individualism saturates American culture, meaning we don't even know what it is, to the point that we no longer notice it. Individualism tells us we can become more like Jesus by ourselves through a self-help program or more effort. Never in Scripture were we able to become followers of God individually. You may become a better person. You may believe more in the way that you want to believe in a certain way, but that does not mean you're a disciple of Jesus. Discipleship the way that Jesus talks about and you see in Genesis and Exodus is done in community. And the greatest enemy to the church today is individualism and consumerism. That who cares what everyone else thinks? The only person that matters is me. That is not biblical. That is anti-biblical. That is an atheistic teaching that the church has adopted. It's a godless teaching that the church has adopted that I can grow with Jesus all by myself. That's not what Jesus ever taught on. He talked about you go for all people. So when I look at the church and I look at the early church and I look at what they created, this biblical community, I see four things. And none of it deals with individualism. Here's what's so sad about individualism before I jump into biblical community. Even the strongest of followers of Jesus when they're going through the hardest times, what do they do? They isolate. They isolate. Anyone have a hard month? You don't have to raise your hand. Anyone have a hard year? What did you do? You probably pulled yourself out of community because you believed the lie that no one will understand. You believe the lie that no one will walk beside you. You believe the lie that you can figure this out for yourself. And yet that's the biggest lie ever. Because when we look at biblical community, the key definitive word is community. And when I look at Acts and I look at the Gospels, there are four elements of biblical community. Last week I talked about the four elements of Christ, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King. I was like, wow, it really works with firm foundations. It works with concrete, right? Cement. How do you build cement? Uh, concrete, water, gravel, air. Four elements. I'm like, wow, these are really coinciding. I wonder what's going to happen next week. And I see four things. The first is a loving community. A loving community. When the Bible talks about hospitality, it talks about the love of stranger. It doesn't talk about hospitality as 
preparing and providing for those you love and like. That's not the gift of hospitality. If you have the spiritual gift of hospitality, you are opened to loving that individual you never knew before. So let me ask you, when you look around this room, how long have you known each other? How long have you journeyed with one another? How did God bring you into context with one another? And yet, you went from stranger to some of you being like family. Think about that. I look at that row right behind the, 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 the family right here, right? The Colangelos. You see that group right there? You see this group right here, these five individuals? Right here. This crazy cat, all these crazy cats, these individuals were all strangers at one time. They really were. They never knew each other. They met either through their missional community or through Nyack College. And right now, you're married. Yeah, she's flashing that ring. You're getting married. And Johnny, we're praying for you to get married. But here's the funniest thing. As I walk around the audience, stand up, Johnny, okay? I feel like a talk show host. What's going on? You know who the glue to this whole community is? Johnny. Johnny. How awesome is that? He saw them as strangers. You can look at them. And he welcomed them in. And he created an environment for them to be brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a loving community. I'm sorry, I gotta interrupt the serving. You're not allowed. <laughs> Everything you're preaching about community, learning, individualism, they have taught me. I can only concur and agree with everything you're preaching because for years I've tried to do it alone. For years I was with withdrawing from people and from God, and they wouldn't let me, especially this one. <laughs> And that one at the end. <laughs> because here, I was going to run to Arizona, and they said no. Because here's why. This is what the Bible says. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We grow together. Great illustration. Thanks for coming today, guys. But I love this. Here's the key. During my studies, my one buddy out in Portland, they had a saying. Everybody's welcome, but everyone must change. That was the early church. Everyone's welcome. But are we open to how the Holy Spirit wants to transform our lives? Including me. Including me. Including me. We are a loving community. We meet people where they are at. We are a healing community because real healing happens with one another. Relational, spiritual, emotional, physical. What happens when you pray for one another? You invite the presence of God to invade someone's body and even, and even financial, and even financial even financial. We are a healing community. And I see throughout our church how the healing power of Jesus is at work. Last Sunday, this Sunday, we've had really our first two greatest weeks in the first 15 years. 
Every fall, parents just run back to sports, and they don't really start coming back to church until about October. And it's so frustrating because you don't want to do a kickoff Sunday. There's nothing frustrating when you do a kickoff Sunday and no one's there. That's pretty boring. Woohoo! Right? Last Sunday was one of our largest first Sunday, first services we've ever had in the history of the plant. And if you were here second service, it was a lot lighter last week. But you're seeing this service, first service, was this week was even larger than last week. And this service is more full than it was last week. Why? Because there's something beautiful happening here. The healing power of Jesus is being released, re- released to those who want to experience the love of Christ within a community of people. But it's not only that. It's a transforming community. You do not stay who you are. None of us should stay who we are. Who I am. If you've been here for 15 years, you have to be able to say, Pastor Rob has been growing and maturing, not as a preacher, but as a human being. Amen? Has he taken time to think through what, what he's, what's God calling the church to be? Is he more patient? Is he more compassionate? Is he a better listener? Is he more present? Each one of us, each one of you, when I look around this room, all I see is transformation. Because God wants to not have you stay who you were, but he wants to meet you where you're at so you can become the individual who he created you to become. Not be, become. And as he keeps working on you, one day you're going to step into heaven and he's going to be like, ta-da. Right? That's the beauty. That's the beauty. But then there was a part that I love in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 48, where they talked about helping each other in need and, and selling possessions and giving generously. Did anyone flinch during that? Anyone flinch like, he's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about money. You're, 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 you're knocking your neighbor. I swear he's going to talk about, if he talks about money, I'm out of here. Then Go. Honestly, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what else to say. Because when I look at the early church, they were generous. They were the most generous people on the earth. They cared for people who had nothing. They taught that everything I have belongs to God because God is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How many of you have a car? How many of you have two cars? Raise your hand. How many of you have three cars? Right? Yes. Yeah, I know some of you have three cars. You're lying. <laughs> lying. Right? This whole idea, like God provides. And he provides for us. So we don't get caught up in our individualism. He provides for us. So we can provide for others. He provides for us so we can provide for others. There's no reason to have a church building if we're not doing it for the things of God. There's no reason to have discipleship groups if we're not doing it for the things of God. The church should be the most generous place on the face of the earth. But the church is the people who attend the congregation. I am not afraid to talk about generosity. Because the one thing that my parents taught me, 
that I will always hold on to is that being generous is showing what you truly believe about dependency on God. I love how one time there was a group early on in the plant, and this person, they didn't have a washer and dryer or just an appliance. And they called, they're like, Pastor Rob, what are you going to do about it? I said, time out. What are you going to do about it? What do you mean? I said, what are you going to do about it? What's your group going to do about it? And that group saw the need of the individual in their group, and they said, we got it covered. That's learning to be generous within community. And when you're generous, you're not afraid to talk about generosity. Because when I look at the early church, they were generous. Discipleship. It all makes sense. Putting, a, putting myself in a place in a community of people where I'm learning my identity in Jesus and unlearning unhealthy patterns that I've believed about myself and the world and even God that have kept me from my identity in Christ. I'm unlearning them so that I can live in the rich and satisfying life that Jesus has called me into. And it's done in community. A community that is learning to do this together as we're unlearning the unhealthy patterns that this world has put on us. We are all selfish, including myself. We are all egotistical, including myself. We all are individualistic, including myself. But together, we get to come against the enemy that is destroying the church in America and we're going to learn to continue to say we will be a healing community that is loving people where they're at as the Holy Spirit is transforming our lives and we are going to do this as we are crazy generous. Amen? That's the church. And if you're looking for a new church, I will humble myself to the point that if this is not the kind of church that you want to be a part of, I am glad you are here and I am praying that you find another congregation. Because if you are here and you're saying, I want to know Christ, I want to understand who I am, I want to unlearn all of this destruction in my life and I will do it in community, the plant is the place that God has called you today. We are not going to be judged on how many people show up on Sunday morning. We will not stand before the throne of God. And he said, wow, you did 35 worship services, but you discipled no one. Good job. He's going to look out into the sea of people that this church, the plant, poured into and lives were transformed and the community was transformed. And he's going to say to each one of us, well done. Enter into your rest. Yes, I want to see 12 churches planted if we're doing this. Yes, I want to see thousands of people come to worship if we're doing this. Because if we're not doing this, we're not doing the things that Jesus has called us to. We are a Christ-centered, discipleship-motivated church. And when we do that, kingdom come. Kingdom come. 
Amen? Amen. This is humbling. Because when you study other congregations, we're going to do communion. Over the next two weeks, I have the privilege of working with six churches. The next two weeks. You can pray for me tomorrow and Tuesday, and you can pray for me next Monday and Tuesday. You, the plant, have released me to be able to teach other churches to do this. There will be six different congregations that will be meeting here at the plant to learn to do this. I've been working with these churches for the last year to year and a half because they see what God is doing in this congregation, and they're saying, you are biblical, and we want to learn from you. I don't think you understand this. You are part of the original movement of the early church. And when Jesus took the, his, his meal and he took the bread and he broke it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Go die to self so someone can know me. Plant family. You have been dying to yourself and people are coming to know him. And churches around the metro area see it. Praise God. Continue to die. Let's eat. And then he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. this is poured out for all of you. It's the Holy Spirit. The only way we can do community like this, the only way we can live in community like this, the only way we can be that community is if the Holy Spirit is constantly present. Church, new covenant, new filling. Allow the Holy Spirit to tear apart all the lies that the enemy has caused you not to step into community for and today allow the Holy Spirit to invite you back into community so you can have healing and transformation and you can be loved and you can be generous so someone else will get to know Jesus too. Let's drink together. Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.